When I was a little boy, you probably learned to say your blessing at the dinner table or the uh, breakfast table or the lunch table with your family, whatever it may be. And one of the first blessings I ever learned was this, God is great, God is good. Let us thank him for our food. By his hands we all are fed. Give us this Lord our daily bread. I think it's appropriate to begin a a time of blessing or a time of prayer with the vocalization or the understanding that God indeed is great. That God is great. And uh, over over about the past six months, my devotional life over the years has always evolved into something as I'm listening to the Spirit speak. And sometimes I would follow a a Bible reading plan and and study certain subjects. Sometimes I would try to do one of those calendars where you read certain amounts of the Bible in a year. And, And lately what God had me do for the last six months is he would keep me in one book of the Bible. And I would read it over and over and over and over until he told me to go somewhere else. I spent about three months in the book of Proverbs. After that, I went to Psalms, which Psalms is a a whole lot longer. But you let God keep you in a certain place for the amount of time that the Holy Spirit sees fit. And then after that, I spent some time in Ecclesiastes, reading it over and over and over and over and over. What I'm going to try to do this morning is draw from that six months period of uh, uh, spending time in those three books... Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, which interestingly enough, in the Bible are right beside each other. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And I want to bring to you a, a, a conclusion or a summation of those three chapters. And here's the conclusion that I want to bring from those three books of the Bible. God is great. Fear is good. People are crazy. Let me say it one more time. God is great Fear is good And people are crazy Now any resemblance to country music lyrics Is simply for the purpose of memory And and ingraining it in your mind But we're going to travel that route this morning And we're going to start with the conception That God is great And I want to start in Psalms If you would turn to Psalm 19 Psalm chapter 19. And I believe the whole summation of the book of Psalms is God is great. And once I understood this concept, it made sense why it was the longest book in the Bible. Because if Psalms is trying to talk about the glory of God, there's so much glory to talk about. So I want to take just a small selection here to Psalm 19. Verse 1. Which says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. 
Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. He, he, in this chapter right here, is pointing us to the revealed glory of God. And he does this beginning in the natural realm through what we call general revelation. General revelation means that every human being can look at the cosmos and realize that there is a magnificent creator behind every atom, molecule, butterfly, person, ocean, star. That there is a magnificent being behind all of this. This is called general revelation. And then he spends the latter half of Psalm 19 talking about specific revelation. Matter of fact, if you'll recall, about uh, two and a half months ago, we spent uh, time going verse through verse from Psalm 19.7 to uh, 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Now he's talking about specific revelation which comes through scripture. So there's two types of revelation that we have to deal with, or we have to, uh, the availability with about the glory of God. One is general revelation through nature, and the other is specific revelation through scripture. And they both point us to how majestic and awesome God is. If you spend time contemplating one or the other, you will be drawn to this conclusion, God is great. And even People who don't have the benefit of Scripture. Even the Native Americans, before the missionaries ever got here, were able to look into the heavenlies and understand that there was a great being behind all this creation. That's the intended purpose. To give glory to God. The greatness of God is displayed three ways according to Psalm 19. The first is that the greatness of God is displayed in the sky. How vast is the universe? How vast is the mind of God? That in an infinite number of galaxies, and on an infinite number of planets, and an infinite number of sun, He picked one on which to create you and I. And out of this speck on a speck of a speck in stardust... He said, I'm going to send my son to this speck of stardust and let my son die for all these beings. Let my son die for these creatures. Once we contemplate on the majesty of God, we should be shocked by his greatness. God reveals himself, his glory in the sky. Also, the greatness of God is displayed in the soul. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this, God has set in eternity the heart of every man. I ask you to do this. Even a blind person who can't uh, observe the visible cosmos can look inside his own being and, and, and observe the internal cosmos. That within us there is a longing, a desire that God has created you for eternity. C.S. Lewis aptly said this, he said, If within me there is a desire that nothing in this world can fulfill, the logical conclusion is that I was created for another world. The reason we're going to get to Ecclesiastes here in just a little bit and realize as the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, Vanity, vanity, all is vanity, there's meaningless under the sun, is he said every bit of toil and every bit of labor will still leave a man empty except for an eternal relationship with God. And here's the thing, when you look within your own soul, you can find this need there. 
That within the heart of every person is a need for an eternal heavenly creator. Do you know why? Because no one else, no other single person in your life can fill that need. If you think that being married will fill that need, I have bad news to break to you. Because once you get married, that need is still going to be there. If you think that having children is going to solve all your problems, you realize that this doesn't bring the sense of completeness you thought. (laughs) It will still be there. That need for an eternal heavenly father. And the greatness of God is displayed through his son. I want you to think about that sandwich illustration from last week. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the father. If you want to know what almighty God is like, look at his son. The way Jesus interacted with people is the way the Father interacts with people. Every time Jesus saw a sick sick person, he was willing that they be healed. Every time that Jesus encountered a sinful person, his reaction was forgiveness and grace. Every time that Jesus encountered someone with a need, he made sure provision was there. The greatness of God was displayed once and for all through the life, death, and burial of the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. So we see that through scripture, through nature, through his son, the greatness of God is revealed, that God is indeed great. Bill O'Reilly was commenting about the life of Jesus in regards to his new book. And he made this comment about Jesus. He said, Jesus changed the world without money, without political power, and without military force. A homeless man who was a carpenter from Nazareth changed the entire world. And why did he do that? The answer was so that the greatness of God could be seen through a homeless carpenter who loved people. And we understand that this homeless carpenter from Nazareth literally split time in half, B.C. to A.D. We look at that and we say, God is indeed great. Secondly, not only is God great, but fear is good. Let's turn over uh, one book over to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 9, if you will. Proverbs 9, verse 10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So we have two accounts in Scripture, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I want us to meditate for a moment. What is the difference between knowledge and wisdom, and how are they both rooted in the fear of God? Well, let me demonstrate this example Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is, not, is a fruit. Did you know that? Tomato is not a vegetable, it's a fruit. You probably knew that. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting the tomato in a fruit salad. You see the difference there? Knowledge is knowing that it's a fruit. Wisdom tells you don't put it in a fruit salad. Knowledge is the acquirement, the proper acquirement of information. Wisdom is the proper application of information. And what we get from Scripture is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of both of these. The beginning of information and the beginning of application rooted in the fear of the Lord. Now, we've heard this all our life. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But see, when I was young, I asked this question. Why should I be afraid of God? Why should I fear God? And I observed this. I meditated on this. You see, most people connotate fear with avoidance. If you fear heights, you stay away from heights. That is acrophobia. Anybody fear heights? My dad, when we visited the uh, Grandfather Mountain... 
there's that mile-high swinging bridge. And my dad walks across it like he's a 95-year-old man. Because my dad has acrophobia. He cannot stand heights. So because he fears heights, he avoids heights. And most people, what they fear is what they avoid. There are many people afraid of things that they avoid. Some have the fear of public speaking. This is called glossophobia. Next time you see someone riding around in a hover round, and they look like they're perfectly healthy, don't judge them. They may have basophobia, fear of walking. You never know. If you meet someone who lacks intelligence, it might be because they have epistemophobia, fear of knowledge. That explains maybe a lot of not smart people in this world. They have a fear of knowledge. And if your friend at work doesn't watch Duck Dynasty, they may have poginophobia, a fear of beards. And next time someone doesn't laugh at your joke, don't take it personal. They might have geleophobia, fear of laughter. You ever met people like that? I know several. They look like this all the time. Jellyophobia, fear of laughter. But see, a lot of people fear things, and that leads to an avoidance of those things. People who fear heights stay away from heights. So, so what we should think is that if people are afraid of God, they would avoid God. And this is the question I asked. Why should I be afraid of God? And you see, among the things that we are afraid of as Christians, God should not be one of them. Some Christians have this image of an angry God who is mad at them if they don't live correctly. And what that does is that pushes them away from intimacy with God. Did you ever have a teacher at high school who, who uh, everyone was afraid of? They would send people to detention simply for looking at them the wrong way? Let me ask you, did, did that type of person make you want to be buddies with them? Or did you avoid them? Normally you avoided the people you were afraid of. You see, in the same way... When we believe that God has a spirit of anger towards us, this drives us away from God and not to God. So what should our fear be based upon? So several years ago, I started praying to God. I said, God, help me understand the fear of the Lord. I would pray and ask the Lord for wisdom, and I knew that in order to get wisdom, there must be the fear of God because that's the beginning of wisdom. So I asked God, help me understand this. And then one day, I was at military duty. And it was time to uh, attend the recertification of the M16 rifle. The M16 rifle is a standard rifle of uh, military members of the Air Force. And I remember on that day the instructor saying this. As he held up that weapon, he held up this rifle and he says, The fear of this weapon is the beginning of wisdom on how to use it. The fear of this weapon is the beginning of wisdom on how to use it. To use it. And what he meant by that was when we realize the awesome power of that weapon, it does not lead to our inability to relate to it, it leads to our proper ability to relate with it. Understanding the awesome power helps us relate to it in the best manner and most properly. So he was not telling us to fear the weapon so that we had never pick it up, he was telling us to fear the weapon so that we when we do pick it up, we'll understand how most correctly to relate with it. And this is what I learned. That the more we meditate on the awesomeness of God, we, do not, uh, we are not pushed away from Him. 
Matter of fact, we are pushed to him. When we meditate on the, the, the awesome reverence that we should have for a mighty creator, we are not pushed away. We are driven to him because he is the only one sufficient to save. He is the only one sufficient to help. Left to our own devices, we will be at lack. But when we meditate on the awesomeness of God, that proper fear, that proper respect, that proper understanding of his holiness, we are drawn to this amazing holy God. You know, maybe you were a kid and there were times when you were really bad. And you had done something that you knew your parents would not approve of. And maybe you thought to yourself, when my dad gets home, he's going to kill me. I thought that a lot. (laughs) You did not look forward to the punishment that was coming. And that created within you a sense of fear. And here's what most Christians do. Because they may feel like, you know what, I've done wrong, I've displeased God, and now God's angry at me. He's going to punish me. I believe God is going to punish me. And what happens is they look forward to, fun- to punishment, and it develops a fear of God within them. I'm afraid of what God will do to me. That's how many Christians view fear of the Lord. But I want to suggest to you that this is incorrect. That as a Christian, we don't look in the future at what punishment awaits us. We look in the past as what punishment was poured on his son, Jesus Christ. Because God's discipline towards you, his judgment towards you, is not a future event awaiting to correct you. It is a past event that was wrath poured out on his son and all his anger was displayed there. So for us to understand the fear of the Lord, we don't look to what God will do to us. We look to what God did do to his son. If we want to understand the fear of the Lord, we don't have to look forward because God might punish us. No, we look backwards because God did punish Jesus. And this leads to a proper fear of the Lord. At the cross, God poured out all his wrath for sin upon his perfect son, Jesus Christ. Yes, indeed, God does hate sin. He hates it so much that he crushed his own son to redeem us from it. Yes, God was angry with our sin. He was so angry that nails were driven into the flesh of God as son as an atonement for our sin. But my friends, the good news of the gospel today is this, that God is no longer angry at you. Let me say this one more time. If you walk away, I want you to hear this. God is no longer angry at you. Dear Christian, because all of his anger for your sin was placed upon Jesus Christ so that you can live in a place of boldness and grace, able to relate with God out of sheer forgiveness and sheer mercy. You see, when we see what happened on the cross, that's fearful that God did that to his own son. That doesn't push us away from God. It pushes us towards him because we've been redeemed and reconciled through Jesus' blood. Because of the cross, God is Fully satisfied with the propitiation of his son. And now you are the beloved child whom the father loves. Just like the prodigal son who returned home expecting that his father would be angry and make him a servant. That's how we approach God. We think God is going to be angry with me because of how I lived. I've not done and I've not been obedient as a Christian. But instead when that son returned home. His father put him on a new robe representing his royalty and righteousness. He gave him a new ring. Representing wealth and prosperity and getting new shoes representing freedom. You see my friend you've come into the family of God and you've not been been lowered to the level of servant. You've been redeemed to the level of a son. And that is good news. 
My friend, you deserved hell, but God gave you heaven. You deserve to be eternally separated from him because of your sin. But we are eternally united with him because of his sacrifice. Fear is good. When we see what God did on the cross, it draws us to Jesus. And lastly, people are crazy. Can I get an amen? Let's turn one book over to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I'm having fun this morning. How about you? Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. Scripture says, For there, there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Also do not take heart to everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. Once again, let me read verse 20. For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. That seems like bad news, doesn't it, folks? Here's what the scripture is telling us. Uh, the, the preacher, uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, considered the wisest person who ever lives. Here's what he declared. There's no one good. That's one of the best things he's ever said. There's no one good. Everybody fails. Everybody falls. People are crazy. When you understand that everyone has a, a, a spirit within them that is, that is separated from God, that is depraved, that the flesh is broken, when you understand people's brokenness, it will help you find a place of compassion instead of a place of judgment. You might see people acting crazy, but know that they are broken people in need of God's redemption, in need, in need of God's grace. Next time someone makes you angry because of their actions, just remember how our actions angered God to the point where he sent Jesus on the cross. You see, our actions caused in God a motive of reconciliation. Don't let other people's actions create in you an anger that should really be a compassion when we see their brokenness. Everyone is fighting their own battle. Everyone is going through much more than you will ever see on the outside. The hurt and pain that you are experiencing is exactly like the hurt and pain someone else is experiencing. Your pain may have been called by a different set of circumstances, but your pain is just as real as your neighbor's pain. The problem is we're just not honest about it most of the time. We hide it and we put on a pretty face. We put on a happy face and we act like pain is not there. But the reality is other people who are going through crazy circumstances are no different than you and the circumstances you've gone through. They're all broken people in need of God's grace. Once we understand the brokenness of people that it happens because of sin, it will also help us from being hurt by others. It will help us from being hurt. We are normally hurt by people while forgetting that we also are guilty of hurting. The second part of uh, the verses we read says, don't listen to everything people say. You know why? Because people are crazy and they're going to talk. Don't listen to everything they say because you might hear your servant cursing you. And that could turn you away from your servant. That could turn you away from your friend. But he says, even if you do hear it, just remember that in your own heart, you've cursed many times. In your own heart, you've cursed people many times. So next time you hear someone say a negative thing, all you got to say is, you know what? I've thought the same thing about other people. They're no different than me. That's what the, the writer of Ecclesiastes is telling us. All people are no different from you because in reality, we're all crazy. In reality, we're all separated from God. 
And if Christ has not redeemed us from the curse of the law through his blood and we have not trusted in him by faith, then our fate is no different no matter if you were Mother Teresa or Hitler. Apart from God's grace, the fate of every man is the same. But God intervened. God reconciled and brought us back to himself. We're just like that prodigal son where we received an inheritance and we went out and wasted it on filthy living. On prodigal means wasteful. It doesn't mean return. It means wasteful living. We have wasted what God has entrusted us with, but he still loves us anyway. You're going to be hurt by people and you're going to think of things like, can, can you believe what she said about me? Can you believe what he did to me? Well, the reality is once you step back and examine, you'll see that you are guilty of doing the same things. Psalm 146 verse 3 says, Do not put your trust in princes or in human beings who cannot save. You see, folks, here's what I want you to understand. Life is like a football game. Let's say you have a favorite team that wins a lot. So that excludes the Panthers. But anyway, just pick out your favorite team because you like them. And let's say you have season tickets to see your favorite team. And, and on this certain game, they're going to play a team who's number one, and you know that your favorite team is not going to win. But let's say that your dad has never been to a pro football game. So what you're going to do is you're going to take this, your dad to this game with you. He's never experienced the pro football game. But you see, if you go to this game with the expectation that your team is going to let you down, you know they will lose. If you already know that, then you will not be disappointed by the outcome of the game. Because you didn't go to this game for the purpose of being with your team. You went to this game on this occasion for the purpose of spending time with your dad. And whether the team wins, loses, or completely stinks, it is ultimately the relationship with your father that brings you contentedness. And the problem is most people have their eyes on other people expecting that the outcome of other people is what's going to develop their contentment for the day. But in reality, being in the game and being at the game isn't about what other people perform. It's about spending time with your father. And when you realize that other people are going to let you down, it doesn't make my day worse because I didn't get up today so you could build me up. I got up today because there's a heavenly daddy that has invited me to enjoy salvation with him. And we're invited on the, along the ride with other people. And if they're happy, good. And if they're not happy, that's okay because I'm still in the seat with daddy. This is why so many Christians are unhappy. They're looking at people for their pleasure instead of enjoying time with their father. Our earthly relationships are good and earthly relationships are beneficial. But these are not what we were created for. They are a picture of what we are eternally created for. Every relationship you have with with a, a friend, with your husband or spouse, with your children, is a glimpse of what you will have forever with Christ. And if that relationship is long or if it's small, it's still a glimpse. Because in the spectrum of eternity, we're all here for a vapor. Some of your children have been taken away from you at an early age. Christ understands, the Father understands what it's like to see a son taken. But see, that doesn't draw us away from God. It points us to him because we say, oh, Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for that relationship I did have. Now I'm trusting you to find contentment and joy 
in you as my heavenly father, not in other people. No matter if they're the best people in your life or the worst people in your life, they're going to fail. Your spouse is going to fail. Your preacher is going to fail. Your children are going to fail. But you're going to love them anyway. Because that reflects God's nature toward us. What I like to do is I like to reverse my original statement. Because we started off saying God is great, fear is good, people are crazy. But let us use all that to point us to God. Let's say this, people are crazy. Let's start there. Fear is good. The proper understanding of our context in this universe. And lastly, God is great. Because if we start the other way, we're ended up on a sad note. Let's go, let's go reverse and end up on a God note. And say, God, you alone are sufficient. God, you alone can save. God, you alone can bring the contentment and joy in my life. And no matter what other people do to me, I'm going to base my relationship with you. Because I'm at the game, and it looks like the team is losing. But, Father, I didn't come here to see the team. I came here to see you. Friend, my prayer is today. That if you never stepped into an eternal relationship with a heavenly God who loves you so much that he crushed his own son. That you'll step into it today. And say, Father, I desire to be home with you. I desire to have that relationship with you. Be forgiven of my sin.